I am here with Stan Cox, who is the author of the new book, The Green New Deal and Beyond, Ending the Climate Emergency While We Still Can. Stan Cox is... Um, He's a, he works at the Land Institute, actually the Institute for Ecospheric Studies at the Land Institute in Kansas, um, where I just I was just there last summer uh, working with Stan and some other great minds at the at Mom, for part of my sabbatical. Uh, so Stan, it's great to talk to you again, uh, even though obviously we've been talking <laughs> all the time <laughs> over the yeah. past year. Uh, yeah. So Stan, uh, I, I loved your book. I just read it over the past couple of weeks. I've been doing some tweet storms <laughs> about it yeah. as I read a chapter. I put the kids yeah. to bed. I, I pop, throw the chapter up and, and take notes on Twitter. Um, yeah. So first of all, though, I want to actually start with the appendix of your book, which is a copy of not your writing, but someone else's writing, i.e. the actual text of the Green New Deal um, proposal uh, that was put to Congress, a, a House resolution introduced la- uh, 2019, uh, January. So what is, can you just take a, a little bit of time to talk about this resolution, which in some ways um, is what your book is about, and in some ways your book wants to go beyond? <laughs> <laughs> right. You're right. The um, the Green New Deal at this point exists uh, only in the form of this uh, joint congressional re- resolution from last year. Um, the, the details of it are being written up by think tanks and, and congressional staffers and, and so forth. And so we, we don't really know uh, what specifically it's going to be. But what the uh, congressional resolution says is that it's going to be um, a big um, publicly funded and backed um, uh, transformation of the uh, uh, energy supply in this country and of uh, green infrastructure um, and will um, but but there aren't any specifics about that. But then um, they will eliminate um, uh, emissions from agriculture, transportation, and manufacturing. In each case, they say as um, as much as is technically possible. Uh, so it doesn't. It cites the um, international uh, group, the IPCC's. Um, recommendation that um, about half of emissions be eliminated by um, uh, around uh, uh, 2035 or so and the um, all, all of all net emissions be eliminated by uh, 2050 but then they don't uh, in the in the resolution it doesn't um, set any specific targets and it just says as much as is technically possible and then which is all... which is surprisingly meaningless especially now uh that everyone's at home you know under lockdown in yeah. the sense that obviously it's technically feasible to to yeah. end emissions you could just say yeah. we're going to shut down this many industries and uh and, and that's it so yeah, right, there's no right. technical pro. There was never a technical problem, as uh, it right. has become clearer now than ever. Right? Okay, but sorry, right. go on. Yeah, yeah. So that's the the green part of the Green New Deal. The New Deal part is that a lot of um, uh, pretty good stuff about um, uh, workers' rights and um, uh, uh, adequate income for everybody and more equality and an end to um, exploitation and um, uh, racial um, justice, um, gender justice, uh, indigenous rights, and a lot, all of that is good. And um, I don't know how much, it's kind of vague about healthcare, but it's clear that both the sponsors of this in, in the, uh, Bernie Sanders in the Senate and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the Congress are in the House of Representatives that they 
um, consider um, universal health care, Medicare for all, a, a program like that to be uh, be part of it as well. So the the New Deal part of the Green New Deal um, is pretty straightforward and fine. It's the, the green part that um, really isn't going to be able to deliver uh, what's being promised. Right. So why, why not? So is part of part of the reason it's not is has to do with a lot of the kind of deeper underlying assumptions, right? Like, uh, so maybe we should run down some of them. Uh, for example, one of them is the idea that you that by building out renewable energy capacity, it'll kind of automatically crowd out the fossil fuels, right? That's almost implicit in this Green New Deal. Well, is that yes, going to work? That, <laughs> yeah, that is the the uh, key assumption of all of this, and and it's it's also the uh, most faulty assumption. Um, new energy sources, when it, everything's left to the market, new energy sources uh, simply add to the total energy supply. They don't chase other sources of energy out. So, um, for example, when um, um, oil, petroleum use came along in, in the uh, late 19th century, and exploded through the 20th century, it didn't run coal out of the market. It, coal use continued to increase in parallel with oil. When after World War II, natural gas uh, came, came online in a big way, um, and oil use and coal use continued, both continued to increase. Um, and then in, uh, in the past decade or so, when we've had an unprecedented buildup of um, solar and wind energy, <clears throat> that has primarily added on to the, the um, energy supply rather than displacing. There has been some reduction now in, in coal use, but that's not necessarily because of, um, of renewable energy um, uh, increasing, a lot of that has been replaced by uh, natural gas in, in um, power plants. And uh, so that the, the majority of the solar and wind additional capacity has uh, simply gone to increase the energy supply. The modeler that everybody follows is uh, Mark Jacobson. I guess he's out <laughs> west somewhere in California yeah. Yeah. and he's the one who's like built out all these state level models and a national model for 100% renewables but you actually looked into yeah. that um in some detail <laughs> and uh what what was I think shocking when you told I didn't realize I remember we talked about it I think we were you were driving me to the Land Institute in the morning, and you you told me something that I couldn't believe, uh, which is that the idea is the percentage of energy that goes to each country kind of stays the same, or like the amount of energy stays the same. Right. Most of the debunking of Jacobson's studies have been technical and pointing out a lot of the uh, flawed assumptions and very um, best case scenario thinking that's done on trying to meet the um, the current um, energy consumption. Of, Which is uh, like massively wasteful and ridiculous. And uh, yeah. yeah, so they so there were these um, U.S. Um, scenarios that they came up with that were rebutted widely in, in the literature. And then they came up with one for the whole world, 139 countries or, or something. And um, and that also uh, was some pretty um, rose-colored glasses thinking, but... Um, I noticed in one of the um, uh, supplemental tables that's in some you know, additional document on online um, where they said uh, in, in meeting the needs of these countries, um, we used their 
current per capita um, energy consumption. And so, um, <laughs> so when so. <laughs> we go when we go to renewable, uh, the the DRC or Haiti, they keep their energy consumption the same, uh, and the U.S. keeps its energy consumption the same. <laughs> right. So we uh, have in this country a, a continuous flow of industrial energy of about uh, 10,000 watts per person. Um, in Europe, it's the average is closer to 5,000, about half of that. And then um, and for, for example, uh, India or Cuba or Haiti, it's, uh, it's between six and 800 uh, watts, I, I believe. Um, uh, the average for the continent of South America is 1,400 watts compared with 10,000 in North America. Um, the um, uh, researchers have estimated that for a, a society to function well with good quality of life, you need about uh, a minimum of 1,300 watts. So the average in South America is just above the minimum required. And for a lot of the whole continent of Africa, it's uh, I think six or 700 something watts so it's about half so there and if there's to be any uh, justice in the world there there are large parts of the world that have to consume more than they're consuming now (laughs) that's right and And for that to happen their north americans are going to have to consume less than they're consuming now (laughs) right and and that has been uh, some of the studies who that are, are critical of of this that that is their um, conclusion that we to reduce emissions in um, in countries that have an energy deficit. The emphasis needs to be put on building up um, renewable energy with financial assistance from the rest of the world. In the um, uh, high-consuming countries, the emphasis needs to be on reducing um, energy consumption. And, and, and that's the most direct way to um, reduce emissions. So the, uh, the other like big scale assumption, and I'm actually uh, planning, you've inspired me, Stan. I'm going to try to get uh, Peter Victor, my colleague from uh-huh. uh, Environmental Studies at York, just to, just to talk about this question of economic growth um, yeah. in, a, in a future episode. But the, the question of growth, which is treated in your book and the idea of perpetual growth. And one of the, one of the, uh, I guess, fantasies, I could say harshly underlying the perpetual growth scenario for environmentalists is to, is the idea that you can have decoupling, which means you can yeah. have growth without constant, um, increase co- concomitant increase in the, yeah consumption of resources including energy so what's the what's the science have to say (laughs) what is what what does the evidence say about decoupling well um fortunately just in in, i was in the process of uh, writing the book now i've written a lot of stuff about growth in the past but the um uh it was the um European Economic Bureau, I think, which is a coalition of different organizations. They did a huge study of, um, of the uh, literature on this business of decoupling, the idea that you can um, in- increase GDP and decrease um, emissions um, or energy consumption at a, at a, at a similar rate. Um, and they studied, I don't know, 200, reviewed 250 studies and analyzed a bunch of data from countries around Europe and the world. And, uh, there, um, they did not find a, a single instance in which a large, a, a medium sized or large economy, a significant geographical area over, uh, a significant period of time managed to do that, to increase GDP and, and decrease emissions at, at the same time. Where there were apparent cases of that, and the, you hear these touted a lot, 
that 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 kind of thing has been done but in each of those cases it was a mirage because the um that was counting only what are called territorial emissions that is emissions generated within the borders of that country and and it was not counting the emissions embodied in stuff that they imported their goods that had been manufactured elsewhere um, th that um, had obviously required energy input to produce and and had resulted in emissions. So when you count everything, what's called consumption level emissions, then um, you you never see decoupling. So that's the um, uh, empirical um, um, case. The the theoretical case was made by a group in in Australia who. Um, showed that um, e even that, that if you really increase efficiency tremendously, uh, that is the um, amount of GDP per quantity of uh, emissions produced uh, or energy or materials, that you can drive, that you can for um, some period of time appear to um, achieve cup decoupling, but you're talking if you're talking about two or three percent growth of GDP, um, that's an exponential curve going up. Whereas increases in efficiency are what are called asymptotic. You can't drive uh, the amount of material and energy you're using to do something down anywhere close to zero. It bottoms out somewhere. So as time goes on, the increase in GDP eats up the uh, the increases in efficiency and um, and your decoupling evaporates. Then, well, where is your optimism, Stan? Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, but <laughs> you do take some time to uh, to talk about the eco modernist um, manifesto, uh, which uh, I think you know it's kind of like the organic. Um, idea of Silicon Valley now, right? It's like we just grow and grow and we have technology and then all the problems are solved by these by growth <clears throat> and technology. So um and that's been embraced. It's not just capitalists, right? We have uh we have Aaron Bastani over across the pond uh yeah. talking about fully automated luxury communism there's also fully automated gay space communism which if you wanted right, to, right. to address that as yeah. well <laughs> um yeah i mean california in many ways is a great place but the the bay area seems to be the source <laughs> of pretty much all the bad ideas these fuzzy days. some <laughs> fuzzy thinking <laughs> right, that's where. Um, yeah. Well, it does seem unfair of you to say c coming, c seeing as how you're in Koch Brothers. Uh, right. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. Maybe we don't have the, much. Half the bad ideas. Half the bad. Ideas. Yeah, we don't have much to brag about in in Kansas either. But, um, but the the kind of central idea of eco modernism is that we can save the earth by retreating from much of the earth's surface and, and waters and living in um, super high-tech uh, mega cities that in, in very high population density that will be totally self-sufficient. Um, they, they've never addressed how you can possibly um, get enough uh, food um, to uh, to feed these uh, cities without in going back uh, out onto the land. I think they're embracing that these uh, fantasies like vertical farming and so forth. Which you've that. also written an article about, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I've. Uh, You're kind of like um, like a cleaner. Like you, you go yeah. and you shoot down all the bad ideas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've been after vertical farming for a decade or so, and um, uh, I, I think I, I can say that uh, confidently that the original vision of vertical farming has never come close to being achieved, and, and so we we can <laughs> dismiss that one. But the the only way that the eco-modernists can you know, argue 
uh, you know, rationally for this working is a, a wholehearted embrace of uh, nuclear uh, energy and, 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 and that there will be um, new technologies that will make nuclear energy totally safe and um, too cheap to meter, as they used to say in the fifties. And yeah, like um, maybe we could have a like I could have my own nuclear plant in my in my basement or something. Well, well, yeah, there's that kind of thinking. Um, and people usually then um, uh, when, when you ask them how's that going to be, they talk about uh, thorium, the element thorium, and uh, some of the eco modernists have talked. Or is it them or the uh, fully automated communism people who um, say, well, we can mine thorium for, from asteroids um, and then we'll uh, have all this uh, energy. But there, yeah, I mean, when you, whenever you know, people say, what, what is this eco-modernism? And I say what I just said, I, um, it's kind of like vertical farming. I think to myself, what, are they really saying, is, is this some kind of parody? But then I realized, no, that it's not the parody that fully automated luxury communism. When I saw that, I said, okay, this has to be a parody, but uh, <laughs> appara apparently it's not. It's, I think uh, culturally part of the problem is uh, in the 60s and 70s, science fiction writers would look at science and speculate. No and write mm -hmm. science fiction. And now I yeah. think these Silicon Valley type thinkers are reading science fiction and thinking yeah. that it's real. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unable and, to separate science fact from science fiction. <laughs> right. And the, the writers and editors at uh, uh, Jacobin have um, gone whole hog for this uh, fantasy. And, and the, the left in general, it's the same um, uh, tendency on the left as uh, the wholehearted embracing of, of the Green New Deal that if we there has to be a way to that everybody can be provided for and uh, but the, the problem is um, that it's the way we've always um, handled inequality in the past is with growth. We've said we, um, a growing economy, the pie keeps getting bigger. So people who have the smaller slices, their, their, their lot is going to improve that, yes. uh, that way. But, um, but the ecological economists long ago started uh, pointing out that that is, that's not something that um, is going to work for, uh, forever. It's, it's a, it can be a campaign promise, but it's uh, it's not not going to work, and it ha certainly hasn't worked. Growth has not benefited um, the, those at the bottom of the economic pyramid. Yeah, because there's a business cycle too, right? So things grow yeah. for a while, then they contract, and when they contract, yeah. they ask the wealthy, ask the poor to yeah. to <laughs> accept worse circumstances, yeah. and they shove them down their throats with mm -hmm. violence if they have to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, the, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, the uh, regular people don't benefit from the growth, and then when you have um, extreme degrowth, like what unplanned degrowth, like we're having now, the uh, regular people pay the price for it. I don't remember whether this is in the book, but like uh, modern monetary theory, uh, <laughs> basic income. I guess what this is this is also part of the fully automated luxury capitalism. <laughs> concept right right um yeah 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 basic income or there's also universal basic services that I, I think we're going to have to have in fact right now we need it if we don't have something like that here in the coming weeks uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, misery in this yeah there are a lot the rich people also won't be able to <laughs> I mean, they, you, they need, th th there's certain things that rich people seem to have forgotten, which is like, yeah. you need people to work for you. <laughs> they need to be alive. Yeah. Uh, no. You need yeah. <laughs> the, the system, you know, like they just, they've just forgot. Yeah. It's, they've had it too easy for too long. And now right. they, they just want to claw every penny out of people's hands. And it's like, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, it's very yeah, strange. Um, that, yeah, that's uh, that's right. Now, as for modern monetary theory, which basically is the the idea um, that's become popular among one strain of uh, economists, um, is that uh, in a sovereign country, the con the government can just continue to spend. Uh, or to appropriate money into being to um, the Congress says we're going to uh, have a Green New Deal. It's going to cost this much. We're sending and direct the Treasury to um, send that much uh, uh, funds by wire, I guess, into the accounts of the, uh, who, the entities who are going to build the stuff. And uh, that the. Um, and then the biggest concern that um, is expressed about that is, well, that'll cause inflation. Um, you know, uh, yeah, printing nothing. more money always causes inflation. And that's, so, uh, that's, that's such a trivial yeah. like yeah. the problem is so much deeper than that, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And and the M M MMT people rightly say, well, you just uh, tax that away again to get it out of the economy and. Um, well, yeah, but now you're talking, if you're talking about making, creating money by fiat and then taxing it to control it, you're basically mm -hmm. talking about a planned economy at that point, right? <laughs> I mean, right. they, just, yeah. they just don't want to say it and they don't want to <laughs> include the other mechanisms of yeah. <laughs> direct deployment of resources. Yeah. 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 And, and, and that's, um, there are a lot of problems with that as a long-term strategy and, and there's huge controversy over the whole thing. And so I made the, I, I had to write this book within a very compressed amount of time. And I made the decision not to say anything about modern monetary theory in the oh, book. Oh, so because, this is cutting, this is cutting room floor stuff. <laughs> yeah, because A, I didn't have time to study up on it and really be able to say anything sensible. And B, I knew that whatever I said about it, one side or the other, or probably both, would uh, would um, uh, uh, disagree with what I had said and condemn it and dismiss the whole rest of the book because I had said something about uh, about this whole thing. So I, I didn't say anything in the book. Um, my colleague, uh, Lisi Crawl, and I have been talking about um, uh, writing something about it now um but just now in the past few weeks i've been thinking really this is the only thing we can do in the short term right now with the economy as it is to if we're going to have exactly. universe we need universal basic income health care all this congress has just got to go ahead and and uh, appropriate the funds to do it we, yeah we there's actually there's an insight in it which I think yeah. shouldn't be discounted, which is that this is actually how it works. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> you know, you, that you can, you can quibble with various aspects of the prescription, <laughs> but like the idea that um, every dollar of money that's created uh, has to create a, a corresponding government debt, that is yeah. not, you know, that's not required by, in any theory, right? That's, that's a, to the benefit of the banks. That's right. because yeah. banks... Uh, played this key role in the establishment of all of these states, and they kind of yeah. like it that way. But yeah, the idea <laughs> that you can do that with taxes instead, I, I think that's true. Um, I've heard, I think, uh, you know, the criticism that you kind of implied there, and there's a friend of mine in Toronto, John Clark, who's a retired anti-poverty organizer, and he's dead set against basic income. Like, he can't say <laughs> enough bad about it. But what he's talking <laughs> about is... Um, basic services if you want like he would yeah. he would rather people have everything that they need without having to pay for it than you know he sees it as yeah. all a, a neoliberal trojan horse like oh we'll give you fifteen thousand dollars we'll cut every public service so that you have to you know take an uber instead mm -hmm. of taking the bus uh you know buy health insurance buy crappy private health insurance out of your miserable fifteen thousand dollar payment mm -hmm. uh etc right so yeah he, yeah so that's a that's the yeah. flip side of it or like the leftist uh, yeah. side of that debate.
But I, yeah, yeah, I do. I, I think universal basic services is the way to go. People have, were criticizing this um, measly $1,200 payment that uh, here in the U.S. that people are supposed to be getting uh, uh, because of loss of income and so forth. Um, yeah, people were saying that that's just the government might as well just be sending that money to the landlord because people are going to turn right around with that twelve hundred dollars, uh, pay pay a month's rent or or go buy some food, and it's it, it's uh, gone. It, yeah, that's it's it. gone, and it's now in the hands of uh, the um, the owners. <laughs> yeah, and we know from recent history that people who own money are just parking it in accounts to the like foreign accounts yeah. to the tune of trillions and trillions of dollars. Yeah. Like $32 trillion or something. So anyway, yeah. um, cap and trade, Stan. Well, I, you know, I didn't really have to de- spend as much time debunking that in the book as, um, as I did other things because it, it has uh, failed so uh, spectacularly. Um, well, it, it was pretty good with the trade part, just not so much with the capping part. Right? <laughs> yeah, and yeah, um, but the you know the uh, European um, Union had, I guess they they still have one um, a, a cap and trade system in in which. Um, uh, it, Entities like power plants and whatever who create emissions have to buy permits on, on, in, by auction, and so that determines the price of the yeah, permits. Yeah, I think I think that's a lot of Elon Musk's business model, right? Is like uh, <laughs> it has to do with these carbon offset yeah. game, carbon yeah. offset gaming. Yeah, yeah. Now they, um, there have been proposals to have a. Uh, hard sealed cap on on emissions and then sell only that number of permits that that would get closer to something but i'll I'll get i'll get back to that but the the way these cap and trade systems have worked are as you say um, they involve a lot of uh, offsets and uh, pressure valves and so forth so the the cap isn't real that um that this is what the airlines are all counting. They were all counting on before they got put out of business anyway, but they were to deal with climate. They were just going to keep flying, but buy offsets, meaning pay to have some trees planted in, in Indonesia or something. And, and these offset things are always, they always turn out um worse for the the people who live in in the countries where the offsets are, are being bought um, they they suffer the consequences and they, it doesn't really um, uh, uh, account for very much nearly as much emissions as the uh, the permit allows to be burned so the whole thing's a disaster all right so we've gone through uh, uh, quite a number of bad ideas, <laughs> yes. but um, we've cleared the decks. So now I think uh, we can talk about the the proposal you kind of uh, advocate mm-hmm. or espouse, which is you're calling cap and cope. <laughs> yeah, my friend Larry Edwards, uh, when he and I have written about a, a version of this thing in the past, and so he. He's the one who uh, came up with that. We we called our ended up calling it cap and adapt, but um, I think what I'm talking about here is maybe closer to cap and cope. Um, and so the the cap part is um, nothing like the the cap in in cap and trade. <clears throat> what we need to do, because as we've talked about there there are no market mechanisms even with a carbon tax or anything that are going to um, get fossil fuels out of the economy so there has to be a statutory cap on fossil fuels um, an individual cap for oil gas and coal and it that the amount that can be extracted and enter the economy in a given year in that cap has to lower year by year until 
until it gets to zero by whatever deadline you want to pick. But all of the uh, deadlines, um, whether it's the UN Emission Gaps Report or IPCC or any of them, um, you, you can say uh, that they all will require the same thing. But just as an example, for the UN uh, model, we would need to um, reduce the, the quantity, the the uh, barrels, um, cubic feet, tons of uh, oil, gas, or coal, um, each each of them by about seven or eight percent per year over 15 years until we uh, get to uh, zero. Um, so you're basically talking about making a decision and... Yeah, yeah. So it's a cap and uh, permit system for what uh, what are called the producers, but they're really the extractors of fossil fuel. They 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 would have to they would receive permits and they wouldn't buy them or trade them or anything. It's just this is all all you can bring in. Now um, that obviously would have severe. Um, consequences, um, but it has to be done. So I, um, what I said in the book is obviously the the, um, the these companies are not going to be too happy with a, a having their business plan be to put themselves out of business within fifteen years. <laughs> and, Nationalized. And so there, yeah, yeah. So there, there, it's going to be necessary, uh, one way or the other. It's going to be necessary to nationalize them. I, um, I recommended um, making them big uh, public cooperatives. One, you have people's carbon for coal and people's hydrocarbon for oil and gas, and that they would not only um uh receive uh, these uh, permits to um uh, to uh, inject fossil fuels into the economy decreasingly year by year um but there would need to be a mechanism to uh direct uh those dwindling energy sources where uh they will um uh, provide uh, basic goods and services um, to ensure that there's still plenty of uh, what's essential and direct it away from wasteful and superfluous and, and luxury uh, production. So it would be, um, it, it, it gets tiresome citing World War II, but it would uh, we well, let's uh, let's go there. We got it's time to go there anyway. It's that 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 train is never late. Um, you know, it's the New Deal is in the title, so you're gonna have to deal with this. And and I I really liked your your first chapter. You know, where you talk about oh, the Green New Deal, the limitations, mm -hmm. uh, the history. So and I and I think you've also talked about it a lot in in your previous book. Anyway, you slice it, uh, which is about rationing, and rationing plays a huge role in. Uh, any um, sensible yeah. solution or way yeah. out of this. So yeah, yeah. what what <laughs> so, tell, yeah. tell us more. <laughs> yeah, and, and what's the significant what's the significance of it? <laughs> okay, and rationing is really the downstream of of the whole thing. The um and, and the reason I brought up World War Two was that um more important than the rationing during World War Two was what was called the War Production Board, which um, dictated where materials and energy would go into which industries and what those industries could produce and, and what they could not produce and, and um, how many uh, barrels of beer per day brewers could put onto trains to ship somewhere. And you know, it, it was really uh, uh, micromanaging, but it was necessary because of the the, um, the dwindling input of resources in the economy and the necessity to put uh, plow a big part of those resources in, into the war effort. So they had a de facto cap at that time and dealt with it 
but with a, uh, a highly planned economy. But uh, and, and but what happens then if you have a, a decreasing supply, but a, actually an increasing demand because of the boom of, uh, spurred by the war buildup and the end of the depression, people actually had more money to spend, but you had a restriction on the quantity of goods available. Uh, so uh, first of all, they had to have uh, price controls uh, to prevent runaway inflation. Uh, but that doesn't uh, decrease, that actually increases the demand further. So then it was required for you know, little by little, more and more goods uh, uh, had, to be, had to come under uh, fair shares uh, rationing program. So have you uh, have you read Carl uh, Polanyi, The Great Transformation? <laughs> yeah, you, you know, I've read about it all my life, but I've okay. ne- never actually read it. Because it, it's it, one of the things he talks about is like laissez-faire, you know, economies yeah. are always meticulously planned and introduced by government. <laughs> and then yeah. they destroy everything. And then the government ends up having to bit by bit introduce planning. Um, yeah. to try to preserve society from this <laughs> ravaging machine of destruction. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you just described exactly that process in the, in the yeah. States. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, and that's a, a point I tried to, not that, but I tried to emphasize um, at several points in the book. Uh, when people say, oh, you're, you're all about rationing, that's how you're going to, uh, reduce emissions, but it's it's the other way around. Um, that if you um, if you're reducing the quantity of energy and materials coming into the economy because of the cap, then that requires um, uh, first of all um, planning production, then price controls, and then to make sure that there's sufficiency, then, then you have to have uh, rationing at that point. Now, the Green New Deal, the, the other implicit assumption of the Green New Deal is that um, none of this is going to be necessary because um, even, even if we do have a formal uh, cap, like I'm suggesting, that um, we're going to be building up green electricity, and that's going to substitute over the 15, 20, 25 years, uh, joule for joule, um, the energy that's lost from fossil fuels will be replaced by renewable energy, and we, you know, life will just continue as as it is now. Uh, but that, there's absolutely no way we could build up the uh, an inner a whole new energy system uh, as rapidly as we need to take fossil fuels out of the system. In a new system, would we still have enough petroleum to content- keep up the blockades of Yemen and Cuba and maintain <laughs> sanctions on Iran and Venezuela and stuff like that? I, I hope so. I'm, I sure hope we have enough <laughs> fossil fuels to do those things. Well, yeah, where, where we, um, yeah. As we're um, deciding what we can and can't expend our fossil fuels on, that's the low-hanging fruit right there. The military um, has got to be put on a stricter and stricter diet until um, it's not able to do any of those things. Yeah, that would be fully solar bomber jets. Uh, yeah. <laughs> drones, maybe yeah. that, that maybe. I, I guess that's what Elizabeth Warren was was yeah. advocating, <laughs> yeah. right? Maybe, I think yeah. that was last summer. She came up with a plan yeah. to green the green oh, the, yeah. the military. Yeah. <laughs> um. So uh, okay. So we fully automated luxury communism isn't quite happening. But you spend some time in your book, uh, with a with a fictional. Uh, book that you're not quite as critical of uh, from the mm-hmm. 70s, I think, Ecotopia. <laughs> yeah, I, I Ecotopia came out when I was, um, I guess, a freshman in college, and I I didn't read it at that time because yeah, you know, it, it sounded like oh yeah yeah you know, a real 
fleeky sort of thing. Um, uh, <laughs> but and, you kinda, and, he kind of embraces, you know, right? Like that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, and and you know, people were uh, kind of chuckling about it. But but I went and, and read it this past summer, so I could because I thought uh, well, well, the editors were saying, okay, you need to paint a picture of how, um, what life is going to be like if, uh, if Stan's world come, comes about, if we do all these things. And I thought, well, I, I should, um, I should see, uh, uh, what they did in Ecotopia. And it, it was, it's a fantastic book. Um, it, it's a, it's a product of its time, uh, uh 1974, but it's, um, it, they, it, it, without, you know, nobody was talking about uh, a, a climate emergency at that time, but all the stuff that he has, the ecotopians, which are the are, are Northern California, Oregon, and Washington, who have seceded from the United States um, and are trying to do everything they can to uh, live within uh, ecological limits and so forth. Um, most, just about all the stuff they are doing are the things that, um, we're saying now, uh, 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 in the climate emergency era, you know, this is the way that we, um, need to be living, you know, they don't have, uh, personal cars, they're living in, um, yeah, they've turned, um, uh, Telegraph Avenue in San Francisco into a, a pedestrian way for pedestrians and bikes, and, and there are people living in um, uh, these uh, uh, what do they call them uh, uh, villages, um, some kind of uh, village where um, or mini cities, I guess they call them, where you have the workplaces and at a, in the center and. Um, kind of uh, multi-family uh, uh, building dwellings, kind of in a ring around it, and they're on. Uh, they're connected by rail lines. Um, yeah, but the funny thing is, right, just um, as the book was going to press, I had to plead with them to let me change or add one thing because um, earlier this year. Um, the uh, city of San Francisco did turn a couple of mile section of Telegraph Avenue into a pedestrian and, and bikeway, so and, and and buses. So uh, part it, it, they're on their way to uh, Ecotopia. It's happening. <laughs> I did want to ask you: Have you read um, Planet of the Humans? I mean, watched Planet of the Humans? <laughs> I've watched a half of it so far. So where did where do you land on it? <laughs> well, um, yeah, that, uh, this is something I haven't weighed in on publicly. Uh, also, it's kind of like modern monetary theory. You know, people are going to hate you, <laughs> whatever yeah. you. Well, say I, I about can tell it. you, I hate the title. I mean, <laughs> Planet of the well, like yeah, it's yeah. These humans, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's um, people are right that it's. Uh, Badly made and has uh, it's uh, uh, kind of um, they they don't it's not very uh, a very well laid out argument or anything it's just kind of um, uh, trashing things but um, I, I think I guess it, the it, critique uh, of Jacobson's plan is in there and right yeah yeah so there I agree with a lot of the the. Points they're making, but I, it, I don't think it that the inadequacy of uh, renewable energy or any of these things should lead us to just uh, to nihilism or just to, yeah. um, it, which I, it seems like that's where I haven't seen the whole thing. Seems where uh, that's heading. So it, it it doesn't seem like it's a it's very constructive. But I think all the the uh, panic among the green optimists um, just th th saying this is the most horrible thing that's ever been said. They're ignoring that so some of the uh, points being uh, made. 
or, or correct. We can certainly have a debate uh, and a discussion of the inadequacies of, you know, no. NGO-based environmental movements and uh, mm-hmm. and and eco-modernistic plans, but. Let's not have it in the context of humans being the problem. I mean, <laughs> right. God. Humans. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Stan, that was uh that was phenomenal. Uh and your book is phenomenal, you know? No, so thank you. we've got to get beyond the Green New Deal. So what better to, what better way place to start than with the Green New Deal and beyond? Right. Stan Cox. Yeah. Oh, and you have a forward by this obscure um a scholar what's his name chomsky or something like yeah. that yeah yeah well that's cool okay <laughs> yeah yeah that i was uh, really delighted to um uh, to have that and if people want to tune in uh what may 19th for a discussion between uh the the two titans stan cox and noam chomsky they can tune into democracy now right may, may uh, yeah i mean i'm I'm uh, terrified. (laughs) My uh, lifelong hero. um, Not not that I'm not terrified of him. I'm just uh, really uh, hoping that I I don't crash and burn. (laughs) Well, I I think I I predict that um, your your study is going to be deemed worth. I mean, your book is going to be deemed worthy of serious study and reflection. 